couple of weeks ago, if you were, uh, you were here, I shared a story about receiving the Lord of the Rings books when I was a kid. And um, so I, my brother got me started in this sort of world of fantasy and science fiction reading. And I actually haven't stopped since that was, you know, years ago. I actually haven't stopped using my imagination. And in fact, life doesn't feel quite right if I'm not like wandering off into another world or letting my mind drift into space and go different places and imagine different things. So for me, this whole idea of using our imagination as we're engaging the stories of Jesus is um, a beautiful and wonderful sort of gift um, that, I, that I enjoyed this past week as I was diving into the parable for today. So, um, so I'm excited about, uh, about continuing the process as we're um, digging into the story for today. So Scott McKnight um, is a modern New Testament teacher. How are you doing back there, Selena? Did you get it typed in, the first one? I feel terrible. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to read the quote. If it's, if it's uh, partially up there, great. So, so this is what um, Scott McKnight wrote about the parables. Jesus told parable after parable, and the parables are not just illustrations. Parables are fictional stories depicting an alternate um, world. The essence of his parables probe into this mindset that he wants from his followers. Imagine a world like this. The story, the parable, it takes us into its world where we encounter a sketch of reality, of a world, of what the world could be if people were to live this way. And the more time that, um, that we spend with Jesus and we spend learning and wrestling with the stories that, um, that he shared, what he cared about and what he had to say about how to live this life, it's very clear that um, Jesus was inviting us into this sort of different reality, this different way of thinking and looking at life and living uh, our lives, inviting us into a world that um, has different priorities and different values. And, uh, and much of that he did through these stories and parables that he shared. So if you're like me uh, and you find yourself drawn to science fiction or fantasy or really um, any kind of book or movie or shows or even music, you know that they have this ability to, uh, to take us into this place, into this reality, into this sort of other space and open our eyes to things that we might otherwise see. And so when we walk back out of that song or we walk back out of that story, our perspectives are changed and shifted to see things uh, a little bit differently. And it's really uh, a beautiful thing. So I read uh, a series of books by Orson Scott Card. If you're familiar with um, Orson Scott Card, he's written a ton of um, books over the last like 30 or 40 years. Uh, so I recently read a series of books by him that were uh, the stories were based in North America in like the 1800s. Uh, and as I was reading these stories, I don't know if you've ever read a book that's kind of a rewriting or retelling of history. Uh, and so I'm reading these books and I'm going along and all of a sudden I'm like, hold on a second. That's not how George Washington died. That's not what happened. And I realized as I was going, I didn't know this when I started reading, that he was actually setting it in sort of real context in North America. But as the story progressed, he was rewriting how things went in North American history. And one of the big things that the books focused on or dealt with was um, the atrocities that white Europeans had 
um, committed as they moved into North America and expanded and stretched through North America and all that happened in the abuse towards Native Americans. And so while the books were technically fiction, this sort of alternate reality or alternate history in North America, they gave me such a different understanding of what had happened and what was committed by explorers and settlers and pioneers, by European governments as they took over and spread through North America and eventually the United States government as they spread through North America. And even though it was fantasy or science fiction, it gave me a perspective when I walked out of those stories that I hadn't had before and allowed me to think differently and live a little differently in my perspective uh, on history. So in Jesus' case, through his stories and his teaching, he's calling us to that same thing, to see the world a different way and to live a different way based on this new perspective that he's giving us through his stories and through his teaching. So he constantly taught about, and you run into this as you're reading through the life of Jesus, he was constantly teaching what he referred to as the good news of the kingdom of God the good news of the kingdom of God. And the one way to think about this good news of the kingdom of God is that this is a new reality that he was offering to us, showing to us, revealing to us through his stories. That the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is near. It's possible. This new way of living, these new values and priorities, these things are possible. It's very close. We have been invited in to that kingdom to live that way in, uh, in the course of our lives. So, uh, this kingdom of God thing, this new way of living, it is so, one of the challenges for us, it is, that is, it is so different than the rest of the way the world works. If you remember the series we did a couple of years ago called the Upside Down Kingdom, we were specifically looking at this idea that the kingdom of God that Jesus was introducing was upside down. It's the priorities and values of this kingdom are totally opposite of the kingdom of this world and the way the world and society functions. And so we encounter the parables, uh, the imaginative stories of Jesus. And that's what we're taking a look at through this, um, through this teaching series. So the parable that we're looking at today is um, a very familiar parable to a lot of people in um, the world, maybe to you. In fact, the phrase Good Samaritan, we're looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. The phrase Good Samaritan is used like all over the world, lots of different contexts. Two of my daughters were born in Good Samaritan Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. I think there's a Good Samaritan Hospital in like every major city like in the United States. And, it will, and I know there's Good Samaritan Hospitals in other places in the world. There's ministries and organizations and missions and all kinds of things all over the world that use this phrase, uh, the Good Samaritan, or called Good Samaritan. Uh, and it all goes back to this parable. This parable is the origin, the origin of that phrase the Good Samaritan. Actually, the parable is not, but it's the way the parable was named um, over time. But all of it is going back to this parable that we're looking at today. So as Wendy mentioned last week, our goal, um, so teaching up here, me and Wendy and Alberto and Matt, our goal is not to tell you what these parables mean specifically. Um, it is to help you engage your imagination and move into a place where you start to appreciate the content of what Jesus was saying and allow the spirit to move and to lead. So in the story today, Jesus actually doesn't interpret the parable. So he gives this story, but he doesn't tell people what it means. He just left it with them. So it made me, as I was processing through it, I was like, okay, Jesus didn't tell people what it meant. Why would I stand up here and tell you this is what it means? That seems a little bit, um, 
presumptuous on my part. So, um, so my goal today with this parable is just to help set a context and make it possible for us to hear this story the way Jesus' original audience, the people he was speaking with, heard it that day um, a couple of thousand years ago. So, uh, so that is our goal, to help you engage with the story, to engage your imagination, and to move into this place uh, where the Holy Spirit can lead you into the story and, um, and through the content of this story. But the challenge um, with the parable today and with, uh, with all of the parables, really, one of the challenges that we run into uh, is the distance that we are today from these, the original sort of setting in which these stories were told. So Jesus was a Jew, and he was speaking almost all the time to groups of Jews, to crowds of Jews that were around him. Uh, and this happened like 2,000 years ago. So Jewish culture, Jewish reality, under the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago is a little bit different than our world today. In fact, drastically. So many things are different from then to now that it's very challenging for us to look back and to hear a story and to make sense of what was being said. Or we think we make sense of it, but we don't actually hear it the way the original audience would have heard it. And so that the challenge today, and this was the challenge for me as I was studying this, is to try to get a picture of what the people with Jesus that day would have heard. What would they have heard in the words that he was sharing and the things that he was, uh, was talking about? So, uh, so I want to help us engage our imagination as we read the, the, the parable today. But for us to hear it the way the crowd heard it 2,000 years ago, there's a bit of context that we need to consider. There's some words that are used that we just don't really use. There's words that are used that we use totally different than they did back then. And so we need to do some processing to kind of understand and to position ourselves to hear what that original group of people in that room with Jesus 2,000 years ago would have heard as Jesus was sharing this, um, this story. So if you are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan, this is my request um, for you. I would like to ask you to attempt to set aside what you thought about the Good Samaritan parable, things that you've heard, things that you've been taught, rumors that you might have heard about this parable, to try to set those things aside. Um, even if you feel like, yeah, I have a pretty good idea of what this story means, I would like to just ask you to set that stuff aside so that we can attempt together to journey into this story and to see and to hear the way they would have heard this a couple of thousand years ago. Uh, so that's my, my request for you guys, and I know it's a, I know it's a challenge. So, all right. Um, in order to help us process, it's kind of a long passage that we're looking at from Luke chapter 10. Um, I made some sheets for you guys. So Lily, could you help hand out? Somebody wants to give Lily a hand. Um, so I made a sheet uh, for each of you. It's English on one side and Spanish on the other. And it's got the, uh, the passage that we're looking at from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Um, so I want you to have that in hand while we're going through this. So you can take notes, a circle or underline things. Um, you can doodle or whatever you want to do on that page. Um, but here's the thing, don't read ahead. <laughs> the challenge is to have this sheet of paper in front of you and not just say, I'm not sure I'm interested in what Larry's going to say. I'm just going to read down through this and hear what Jesus had to say. So I, that is a good, normally a good idea. Not listen to me, listen to Jesus. But um, it, we're going to walk through, we're going to spend a lot of time going down through this and we're going to go down through it a couple of times. So you're going to have plenty of time to reflect and process and listen um, and read through what um, we discover on that sheet. So on your sheets, you will notice um, near the middle, there is an indented area. 
There's a chunk, a big paragraph that's indented in the middle of that. That is the actual parable that Jesus told. So the story that Jesus told is that, par- that, uh, I, that section, that paragraph that's indented in the middle. So um, the verses before the passage, the words and lines before it and after it, uh, aren't the exact parable. They're actually context that Luke, the writer of this account of Jesus' life, gives us. And so he lets us know kind of what's happening before and after the story so that we can understand the context. When, why did Jesus share this story when he shared it? Uh, and what is the reason for that? And what kind of clues can we get um, from the context of uh, the story? So we're going to spend some time on the first part, look at the story, and then spend some part time on the, the section after the story as we work down through things. So, um, and again, our goal through this is... Um, to engage our imagination. So here's, here's the way this is gonna work. We're gonna walk down through it the first time, down through the parable, and I'm just gonna share bits of information here and there to let you know the meaning of words, some different things that we'll encounter there that I hope will help us understand and hear the way the, uh, the original group of people that are there with Jesus heard. And then we're gonna take some time to just be quiet and still, and you can read and reflect and take notes and engage your imagination, and then we'll finish up after that. So that's kind of how the flow is gonna work um, for today. All right, so here we go, top of your sheet there, the beginning of Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Okay. So some things we need to know um, right off the start here. So Jesus gathered with groups of people um, in houses, outside, in different places, in different sort of buildings. Oftentimes it was over the course of a meal. Sometimes it was like just gathering in someone's home, having a discussion or spending time together. And oftentimes they'd be sitting down. And so what the speaker or the person that was starting to talk would stand, kind of like this, stand up and speak. And when their turn was over, they'd kind of sit back down. And it was a way of kind of interacting in settings, group settings like this. And so, um, so this guy, whoever this is, stands up to share something and to talk to Jesus. So the guy that's standing up at this point is referred to um, in English here as expert in the law. There's actually one um, Greek word that's used and translated as expert in the law. Sometimes it's translated as a lawyer or as an attorney. Uh, And what this is referring to, expert in the law, it's talking about Jewish law, the Mosaic law, the laws that governed, the religious laws that governed the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, the Jewish people. So this guy is an expert in the Jewish law, which was the, um, the Jewish law is the first so many books in the beginning of Hebrew scripture. So what we call the Old Testament, the first five or so books that we encounter there. Um, hold the laws that governed the way the Hebrew people, the Jewish people lived their lives. And so this guy is an expert in that stuff. And so he is the one who kind of lets people know, here's how you broke the law, here's how we honor the law, whatever. That's what this, um, that's what Luke tells us this guy is here. Uh, So on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to to inherit eternal life? So most Jewish people at this time uh, during Jesus' day believed in eternal life. So this was a thing, that there is this life that God gives us after this age, life after this life. That was a very common understanding. There were some Jews that did not believe that, but the majority, the average Jew, would have believed in eternal life, a life after um, this life, at this point in Jesus' life, when Jesus lived. So this guy 
and decides that he wants to test Jesus in some way. He wants to try to, and we see this a lot in Jesus' life, to like catch him off guard or ask him a question that maybe Jesus will mess up. He'll give the wrong answer, and it'll sort of disprove who Jesus is. Everybody will know, all oh, this guy's a fake. He got that answer wrong or whatever. So this guy decides he's going to test Jesus, try to catch him in error. So he asks Jesus what he needs to do to get eternal life, which is an odd question, actually, for Jewish people. Because the Jewish people at this time, their understanding is that eternal life has a promise that God has already made because we're Jewish. This is a promise that God made thousands of years even before this conversation with Jesus is happening. So the average Jew would have understood, you don't barter for eternal life. You don't like negotiate, what do I need to do? How do I get this? Um, it's something that's given to you because you're a Jewish person, because you're chosen, because you're a part of God's um, family. That eternal life is a gift to you, not something that you earn in some sort of way. And there's something else in this question that we miss because, just because of the difference in language from then to now, um, that I think is really, really critical and we see and we'll kind of talk through how Jesus addresses this um, as we go. So if you have a pen or pencil, circle that word do um, just kind of hold that in your mind, the word do. So he asks in that question, the guy asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So that word do that he uses there actually is this idea of something very limited, something very small that I do. So what it, it's like the guy was saying, okay, I'm into checking boxes, so what do I need to do to get eternal life? Because I want to check that box and be like, good, got eternal life. What's this little sort of thing that I need to do to get eternal life? So that is what's sort of contained in his um, question here, which is kind of fascinating when we start to dig in to understand what's happening in the original language. So if you were sitting there, if you were a Jew in this group of people with Jesus, and you were listening to this conversation, watching this conversation happen, you would realize what was going on here. This is an odd question. Why is this guy asking this question about how do you get eternal life? And do, like it's some little thing that you accomplish in your life. So you would observe that and notice that if you were there speaking the same language, that sort of stuff. Okay, so on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? So as you spend time with, um, with Jesus, you will discover that he very rarely answers questions directly. He very often answers questions with questions. So this guy's question is pretty simple. Like, what do I do? Tell me what I do. And Jesus is like, hmm, what's written in the law? By the way, you're an expert in the law. So he's given Jesus a chance to like show his skills and like demonstrate how much of an expert in the law he is. And so Jesus fires back this question to, um, to let him, you know, what does the law of Moses say? You tell us, how do you understand um, the law of Moses? And so the guy's like, okay, I'll tell you. He answers, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this guy's answer is like perfect. It's a great answer. In fact, if you look through Matthew and Mark's account of Jesus' life, this is the same way that Jesus answers this question on several occasions. So when Jesus is asked questions like this, this is what he says, this exact same phrasing Jesus used. So this guy is like, I know the answer to this. And Jesus is like, yep, got it right. Good answer. 
So beautiful answer. In fact, what he is doing here is he's going back to the Jewish law, the Hebrew law, and he's quoting two different lines that we discover when you look at the Hebrew law. So this guy is an expert in the Hebrew law. He goes back and he quotes two different passages from um, the Hebrew, Hebrew scripture. So Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 9. And these two passages are very, very powerful passages and in fact have shaped the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, for thousands of years, from that time all the way even to today. These are like bedrock, foundational Jewish concepts and Jewish um, teaching. This foundational idea that we're supposed to love God with all of our being and all of our doing. Every single part of us, we're supposed to love God with all of it. And that we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're supposed to care for our neighbors. And this love word isn't like just feelings towards people. It's a very active, sacrificial, engaged, serving kind of love. And so this is just rock solid Jewish teaching in his answer um, here. So we want to hear like the people in that room to try to hear the story and what's going on here um, the way that they heard it. And so there's an important thing that we need to sort of process through here in understanding these two passages. Um, so when the Jewish folks that were there uh, in the room that day, when they heard this phrase, love your neighbor, what would that have registered for them? What did that mean? So another way to say this would be um, when you look at Leviticus 19, which is the passage that he's quoting that says several times, love your neighbor, what was that passage teaching? What was God communicating through Leviticus 19 to his people um, in this concept of love your neighbor? So there's a lot of stuff that you will find if you look back in Leviticus 19, where this comes from, um, about how to live your life of love. So love your neighbor, what does that mean? How do I actually live that out? How do I love my neighbor? That, Leviticus 19, dives into a lot of that um, the stuff. And it's very clear when you look at Leviticus 19 that he is talking about your neighbor as your fellow Jewish person. So I'm, if I'm Jew in this case, then my neighbor are fellow Jews. That's one piece of it. But it's also very clear when you look in Leviticus 19 that your neighbor includes strangers and foreigners. So people you don't even know, people that aren't like you, people that are totally different nationality to you. So neighbor means people like you, your people, but also strangers and foreigners. So take, if you take a look at Leviticus 19, verse 33, uh, this is what it says when you get to verse 33 of that, that chapter. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Treat them the same way you treat a native-born Hebrew person. Love them as yourself. So it was very clear to the people in the room when they heard love your neighbor that it meant my people, but it also meant strangers and foreigners living among me. It was very clear to Jewish people in that room what this passage from Leviticus 19, this guy was quoting, meant. Now, an important side note, it did not include your enemies. Jewish people did not have a concept of loving your enemies. That stuff was new from Jesus. So Jesus, it's very possible the people in this room had never heard anyone, including Jesus up to that point, talk about loving your neighbor. That was all new stuff. And if they did hear Jesus say, you got to love your neighbor, they would have been like, dude, you're crazy. We, loving your neighbor, that's just, or, excuse me, loving your enemy. Did I, did I say loving your enemy the whole, at all? Okay. Let me start over because... This, so love your neighbor, that was very clear to them. Loving your neighbor did not include your enemy to them. 
That's important note right there. So Jesus' teaching on loving your enemy was brand new to them. That was not a concept that they would have found in Old Testament or Hebrew scripture. Um, it was a totally new concept with Jesus. Um, and in fact, if you were in the room and you heard Jesus say, love your enemy, you got to love your enemy, you would have thought, this guy's crazy. Loving your enemy is a crazy thing. So there we go. Does that make sure I got that right? <laughs> Sorry about that. Try to confuse you. Uh, okay, so let's jump. Um, let's keep, keep moving here. So he answers Jesus' question, and it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. So Jesus commends this guy for a really good answer. Good, you got it right. The answer is right. But what we have to catch in this is that he actually commends him for his answer, but corrects his question. So you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And the phrase that Jesus uses, the do word that he uses there, is very different than the do word that the expert in the law used. So when Jesus is saying, do this and you will live, he is not giving him a check the box sort of answer. How do I get eternal life? In fact, he's trying to shift his thinking from this idea of eternal life is something I get by something I do to ongoing relationship, to this idea that he is calling us to live a full and abundant life in this life now. That's where Jesus shifts this guy's focus, that loving God and loving your neighbor, when you do that, you are living this life, this abundant life now. It's pretty cool, pretty cool stuff. Okay, so this strikes me as a great time for this guy to sit down and let somebody else speak. That would probably, this has been a good exchange. We all learned a little bit here, sit down, move on, but he's got something to prove. He does not do that. So, um, but he wanted, Luke tells us, but this guy, the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself. He wanted to make himself look right. And so he asks this question, um, and who is my neighbor? And so he doesn't sit down and let Jesus go on. He wants to make himself look right to Jesus and the people that are there. And so he asks this question, who is my neighbor? And he sets Jesus' parable in motion, um, which we're going to jump into in just a moment. So before we take a look at the parable, I just want to give you some information that um, is necessary to kind of understand what we're reading, uh, some words and um, concepts that we're going to encounter as we're looking down through this parable uh, so that we can understand and kind of hear what they um, heard. So the first thing to remember, Jesus is a Jew and he's speaking to a group of Jews. Jesus loves Jews. They were his people. He cared for them. He doesn't have a negative bias towards Jews. That Christianity has adopted that concept that Jews are evil over the years, but Jesus does not hold that. He does not teach that idea. He loves the people that are with him. The Hebrew people are his people. And so that's really important for us to hold on to in this story, but also in any time we're reading through Scripture, that his attitude towards Hebrew people is really a very loving and kind and welcoming um, attitude. So, so that's the first thing to know. Next thing to know is uh, in the story, the story takes place on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. So Jerusalem, the city, was at like 2,500 feet elevation. Jericho was down a couple of thousand feet, and it's about an 18-mile road pretty rocky, pretty rough road, um, traveling down through kind of a mountainy, rocky sort of area. So that's where the story takes place. Um, there are five characters in the parable that we need to kind of be aware of as we're going through, five characters that we encounter in the parable. The first um, character 
is some man. That's it. That's all we know. There's just some man, some dude, is walking on this road. That's all we know. Jesus doesn't give us any information whatsoever about this guy. Nothing. Now, we have heard lots of stories that have told us what this guy maybe was, but Jesus doesn't give any of that. He just says, some man. And I think Jesus left off any kind of adjectives or descriptions of this guy so that we wouldn't attach things to him, so that we wouldn't, like, categorize or make assumptions about things. So just let's try to remember this is just some man um, is one of the characters. Uh, there are two other characters, the priest and the Levite. So a priest, um, a Hebrew priest and Levite, these are two religious, um, they're Jewish people, they're religious roles in the Jewish system of worship. So worshiping God in the Jewish temple and the whole giant system of um, Jewish religion, priests and Levites are workers in that system. Um, you can't just decide you want to be a priest or a Levite. It's not a career path or a choice you make. You're a priest or a Levite if your father was a priest or a Levite. So this is limited. You have to be in the right family to get these roles. Um, it's important to realize that um, in this case, for Jewish people, priests and Levites were considered good people. Their assumption would have been a priest and a Levite. Those are good people. They know Hebrew scripture. They know how God wants us to live. And so the average person listening to the story, when they heard a priest or a Levite, they would have had good thoughts and good feelings towards that person. They would have actually assumed that they're the good people in the story, that they're the heroes of the story. That's what they would have assumed when they were listening to a story that referenced a priest and um, a Levite. So let's kind of keep that in our mind. There's an innkeeper we know nothing about. He just runs an inn. That's all we know about this guy. And the final character is a Samaritan. And it is really important that we understand what the people in the room would have understood about Samaritans um, because this is a critical part of the story that Jesus is um, telling. And if we want to understand it, we need to kind of get this idea of Samaritan. So uh, there's a very long history between the Jewish people and Samaritans. In fact, they considered one another enemies. So a Jewish person would have considered a Samaritan their enemy and an oppressor in the world. Um, they did not have good feelings towards Samaritans at all. They were the adversaries. They were the enemies. So when they hear Samaritan in a story, they do not assume, oh, this might be the good guy in the story. They immediately would assume the Samaritan is the bad guy. The Samaritan is the enemy. The Samaritan is the one who hurts Jewish people. They would not think of the Samaritan as a good, the idea of a good Samaritan to Jews at that time, not, that doesn't happen. You wouldn't think of a Samaritan as, um, as a good person. Uh, so this is really critical that we hold on to this. The Jewish people and the Samaritan people were one people in the beginning. They're from Abraham, Isaac, and, uh, and Jacob, the same family line. But over the course of history, they separated and became enemies through various um, circumstances and situations that would have happened. So hold on to your mind. You would hear the word Samaritan and think, that's the bad guy. Surely that's the bad, that's not the hero. I'm sure that's the bad guy in the story. So that's what would have registered in our minds were we sitting there with Jesus that day. Okay, that was a lot of information. Let's actually look at the parable. Okay, so the expert in the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus tells a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. 
So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man where the man was, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two silver coins, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. So we're going to look at the rest of the page in just a little bit. Um, but I have shared a lot of information to kind of help your imagination and try to help us hear the story the way they would have heard it then when Jesus was sharing it. And so I just want to give you um, a couple of minutes, some quiet time, and encourage you to just kind of read back through that parable once or twice and just let your imagination take you into the story, into this world where something like this um, could happen. And then I'll come back up and read the story for us one more time. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him appearing dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. So Jesus draws this expert into the law, into this story, draws us into the story, the other people that were gathered around um, in that room that day, into what was a shocking, actually, and controversial story based on the characters and the way they're portrayed. And he invites us into that same place to hear, to imagine a world, to be challenged by this, and to think differently based on what we hear. And then Jesus finishes the parable, and he asks this guy, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? So this guy asks a couple of different questions. He never really gets a straight answer from Jesus. Um, Jesus doesn't answer this question again. He gives him a story, and a very challenging story at that, and then he turns this question back on the guy and says, which of these do you think was the neighbor in this story? Which strikes me as um, in some ways odd, but the more I've spent time with this, it strikes me as something beautiful and dignifying that Jesus does here. He doesn't tell the guy the answer. He doesn't tell him what to think. He gives him a story and he lets the man begin to use his imagination and think differently to change his perspective based on this story that Jesus shared. And the crazy thing is, this is like 150 words and maybe a minute or two of storytelling that Jesus does here. And yet, I think very profound. Which of the th these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And I wonder if you notice there what's missing in that response. Which one is the neighbor? And he says, the one who had mercy. You notice that he doesn't say Samaritan. 
He leaves Samaritan out of it. And when I use my imagination in this story, and I'm kind of getting my mind into this context, I think this guy couldn't verbalize that a Samaritan was the good guy. That the enemy, the person they viewed as the enemy, was maybe the one who was living like God wanted us to live and loving and being merciful and gracious in the way he's called us to. And the priest and the Levite, who knew how God wants them to live, didn't. And he just couldn't bring himself to say, oh, the Samaritan was the one who was a good neighbor to this guy. So check out um, the words there that he uses, the one who had mercy. And if you want to circle that word mercy, an interesting note about the word there. So this story, um, Luke records it for us about halfway through his account of Jesus' life. So um, Jesus, Luke giving the account of Jesus' life. This is chapter 10. It's about in the middle of Luke's account. Um, up to this point, Luke had only used that word mercy as a characteristic of God. He had never used that word mercy to describe human characteristics. So in this moment, when this guy says, the one who had mercy, this is the first time in Luke's account of Jesus' life that that was attributed as a possible characteristic of a human. And when you read what Jesus says next, it strikes me um, as challenging and really beautiful. Jesus told him, after he answers the one who had mercy, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's like Jesus is telling this man, all of us really, to take on this quality of Jesus this loving, active, serving, responsive mercy, not just pity, not just compassion, not just feelings towards other people, but this sacrificial, active, living mercy that is actually a defining characteristic of God. Go and live this way. I know, expert in the law, you asked how to quickly assure yourself of eternal life. How do you get it? But I'm challenging you to shift your eyes to true, abundant life lived now. Love of God, love of your people, love of strangers, love of foreigners, love even of enemies. Mercy lived out. So I, uh, I recently read a pretty powerful quote by um, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, he was doing a little teaching on this parable, actually, and um, so I just want to read you Martin Luther King Jr.'s words. He said, I am going to tell you what my imagination tells me, which is cool. little role model there for us using our imagination as we engage the parables. I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me, he said. It's possible these men were afraid. And so the first question that the priest and the Levite asked themselves was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed this question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? So it never occurred to me before reading this quote to think um, about Martin Luther King Jr.'s imagination, but he must have had an incredible imagination to live when he lived through what he endured in the world and the context around him, to imagine a world that was different and to live towards that different reality. And I think that is exactly what Jesus is inviting us to do, to live into this reality, the values of Jesus, to imagine a world where people love the way Jesus loved and responded to one another the way they, Jesus responded, and to care and concern and mercy and all of these things that Jesus was teaching us, to imagine that kind of world and then to live our lives in a way that brings that, that makes that possible in our community, in our family, and among our friends and where we work and all the places that we walk through the course of our life. And it's pretty cool to see that um, Martin Luther King Jr. certainly did that.
in his life. So um, in this series, we're encouraging you to use your imagination when you're engaging these stories and begin to see the world that Jesus was trying to show us, a world of love and godly values, the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God that is possible even in our community, in our context. Um, so let me pray for us we finish up. <clears throat> Lord, I... Um, Jesus, I, I just appreciate your, um, the way you interacted with people, your stories, your response. You weren't harsh to this guy, this expert in the law. You just subtly corrected and you, you told a story that was challenging and profound and invited him to just experience that story and allow that to do what it would in his heart. Um, opening our eyes to a different way of living, a different way of interacting, a different way of seeing people breaking down our stereotypes and our assumptions about people. And I think there's just so much rich stuff that we encounter in this story and through your parables and through your teaching, Jesus. Uh, God, I pray that you would help us to get in our minds really a picture of this kingdom that you were communicating, this kingdom, God, that you have in mind, the way in which we get to join with you in bringing that kingdom to life in our context, in our neighborhood to love and to care and to serve and all the things that we see in scripture and in Jesus' teaching. Uh, and so I pray that you would help us to see it, spark our imaginations so that we can imagine the world around us in all the glory that it could be if we were to really surrender ourselves to you and to learn how to love your way. Uh, thank you for Everyday Church. Thank you for the people that have committed to this uh, community and the other churches that are here in this neighborhood, all the incredible work that's happening to love and to serve and to care and to be present, to be your hands and your feet present in this neighborhood. Uh, we thank you for all of that, Lord, and pray that you continue to um, teach us how to live like you and how to love the way you love. Uh, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.